Good morning. If you're here for the first time or online watching, my name's Mark. I serve as one of the elders in our church, and I get to bring God's word to us this morning. Before I do that, a couple of housekeeping things. First, I want to uh, greet, I understand our military ministry is at White Sulphur Springs and watching online this morning. And so we are so grateful to God for you all for serving the Lord, serving our country, and for your intentionality to encourage and strengthen one another uh, through this time away. So I hope it's refreshing for you. Just an update. Um, over the next two months or so, uh, we have some friends over at Fairfax Bible Church that are waiting for a senior pastor. And so we have offered to... Uh, serve them by providing, uh, by filling the pulpit for the next couple of months. So four or five of us are going to be rotating through there uh, doing doing that. So uh, that's going on uh, kind of this month, April and May. And then um, just a couple things related to our sermons. One is uh, our sermons are now available as podcasts on uh, both Spotify and iTunes. So you can search RGC sermons. So they're easy to get to that way. And um, as we start this Genesis series, we wanted you to know kind of where the series is going with these eight messages. So the the plan for the eight messages will be on the email that goes out as a follow-up email after this service. That's one of those things that you can sign up for on the website if you don't get that. And Justin and I would love to hear any questions that uh, these messages bring up. There's big things that come into view in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'd love to hear your questions. So please email over to us those things or let us know. And there is a commentary written by Derek Kidner in the bookstore, uh, and it'll be linked in the, the email uh, follow-up as well that we want to recommend if that's, that's helpful for you. So what I want to do right now is I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to the series that we're beginning today, and then we'll hear the, the text of Scripture for the day, and we'll, we'll drop into the message. What is the Bible? The Bible is a story of how God created the world. How the world was ruined by sin, how Christ has come to redeem and reconcile people to God, and how a new and better creation is coming. It's a four-part story. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us how God created, or that God is the creator of the world. Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into that paradise and corrupted and ruined everything. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are essential to understanding this most important story that we have God's word to us. Have you ever played the game Jenga? Do you know how Jenga works? So it's got all these little blocks and you, you, you stack them all up. And then your job is, is you keep taking turns to pull one of them out. And you're trying to not be the one who pulls the one out and the whole stack falls down, right? And so... Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are one of those blocks that if you pull them out, the storyline of the Bible collapses. You can't understand Christianity without understanding thoroughly and carefully Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You can't understand life. You can't understand this world. You can't understand what's wrong with this world without understanding what's going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We need these blocks, this this foundational building block to understand our identity, and our purpose in God's world. Genesis 1 to 3 is foundational to our understanding of our origins, of the basics of life. And so this brings huge things into view. Gender, sexuality, marriage, 
family, work, rest, evil. All these things are opened up and laid out for us in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And the starting point is this. God. Page 1 of a 1,000-page book features only one person by name. God. God is the main character. God is the author. God is the hero. So we hope you'll be able to join with us for these eight messages. And we hope that our church can be increasingly shaped by Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I want to encourage you, you can expect sort of a time release experience with these chapters. They they will have their work in your life slowly and over time. So this morning, we start where God's book starts. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. And as you listen to it, it's a little longer reading than we often do. But I want to encourage you to be an active listener. And one way you can do that is, I want to encourage you to listen to, or listen for, the key word that occurs 35 times in these 34 verses. So Sherry's going to come and read God's word for us this morning and be listening for that key word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thank you, Sherry. If your counter clicked off 35 counts for the word God, you get the prize, you see the main point, and let's pray to him for his help. Oh God, we humble our hearts before you now, and we pray that you would bring light and life and order to this sermon to our hearts and minds, to our lives, our families, our relationships, and the world into which we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give just a brief disclaimer. This message probably won't answer all your questions about the origin of the universe, okay? So if you're wondering about what about evolution, how long were the days, how old is the earth, or a myriad of other questions. They may be question, pressing questions for many of us today, but we need to remember that a good reader meets an author on the author's terms. And the author's questions are different than our questions sometimes are. If our questions are when or how long, 
the author's intention, the author's question isn't that. It's who. This is a chapter about who. Moses wrote this down while Israel was wandering in the wilderness. And the primary question he's answering, dealing with there, isn't when or how long, but who. Who is this God who will lead us from this wilderness into this promised land, from this sort of formless and emptiness as a, in the place that we're in and as a people into the fullness of being a nation? This question of who has enormous implications for everyone alive today. You see, science can address some questions. When? How? But science isn't good at dealing with why or who. The Bible speaks to the biggest questions of life, offering coherent answers that resonate with real life. The origin of the universe. Why are we here? How did it get started? Purpose and identity. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? Science can't answer these questions, but the Bible does. And the first thing it tells us is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're going to take this passage of Scripture in the three sort of sections that it comes to us in. There's an introduction, there's a development, and there's a conclusion. The introduction is chapter 1, verses uh, 1 and 2. And so we're going to look at and be introduced right here to the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the beginning, who's there? When the beginning became the beginning, who was already there? Before there was something and there was nothing, someone was there. Who is that? When the universe came into existence, God was already there. God creates the universe out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the Latin phrase. There was nothing and then there was something and God caused that to happen. Now verse 1 may be a title for the chapter or it may be the first act of creating. I'm not sure which, but the point is the same, that God makes everything that exists. And we affirm this when we recite the Apostles' Creed together. One of the things I love about it is this opening line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The first thing to know about the world that we live in is that it is God's world. What's being taught here differs from polytheism in that there's only one God. What's being taught here differs from local tribal deities because there's one God overall. What's being taught here differs from naturalism and scientific materialism because the universe isn't here by simply some combination of time and random chance. It's here by design and by the will of a designer. The main point of this first point in the sermon is the main point of this chapter And it's the main point of the Bible, and it's the main point of the universe, and that point is God. Full stop. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, first, God. God is the subject of life. God is foundational for living. If we don't have a sense of the primacy of God, we will never get it right, get life right, get our lives right. Not God on the margins. Not God as an option, 
Not God on the weekends. God at center and circumference. God first and last. God, God, God. Have you encountered this in your life? I think one of the defining moments for me in encountering the centrality of God in my life was when I was in college and I was a professing Christian and and beginning to really follow hard after the Lord. And I had begun dating this amazing girl, Leslie Harris, and we had fallen in love with each other. And then she decided to go away for a year on an exchange program. I couldn't believe she would do that to me. It was a problem. And that decision on her part and her absence over that year brought me face to face with this. Who's first in my life? Leslie or God? Who's got that center place? Leslie or God? And I was brought face to face with the centrality of my creator and my redeemer. And it was a defining moment when there was an active submission to know, beside you I have nothing on earth. Who do I desire beside you? You, O oh God, are first. You are center. Genesis 1-1 is an invitation to consider what's first and center for you. And then Genesis 1-2 shows us this kind of soupy mess that we have at the beginning. The earth is without form and void. Darkness is over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. You see that. Without form, it's sort of shapeless. Void, it's, it's empty. There's darkness over the face of the deep. See, this initial state of the earth is kind of a negative state. It's uninhabited. It's unproductive. It's undefined. It's lifeless. And then I want you to see how that all changes, how it develops into creation. And that's the second point. There's this development through these six days of creation. God calls creation into existence through these six days. Now, one of the things that we learn about interpreting any kind of written uh, documents, including scripture, is we look for repetition. We saw the word God is, is a key emphasis. We also look for what kind of literature is this? What kind of genre is this? So we want to ask, what kind of writing do we have before us here in Genesis 1? Is it a, is it a historical narrative, kind of like Genesis 2 and much of, uh, of the rest of Genesis is? Or is it poetry, kind of like Psalms, where you have stanzas and, and, and sort of stylized uh, I- I- imagery? And what we find when we look at the, 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 the six days of creation is we have kind of a hybrid of those two. It's a stylized story. It is history and true history, but it's presented to us in this stylized sort of, sort of literary framework that goes through days one, two, and three, and then days four, five, and six, and there's a little bit of a structure and an order to them. There's some separating going on, and there's some filling going on. So in days one, two, three, and four, you get this separating, separating light from dark and day from night and water from sky and sea Uh, from dry land and uh, stars that separate uh, and sort out the day and the night in day four. But you also get this filling that goes on. In day three, you get plants that start to 
fill up the ground. And then in day four, you get the stars that fill the sky. And in day five, you get sea creatures that fill the waters and birds that fill the sky. And then in day six, you get animals and human beings that fill the earth. So I want you to see that there's sort of this stylized story in front of us here. And that's part of what makes it difficult to interpret what kind of days these are. So let me just take a moment on the days. How long were the days? Just a few comments about this. First, it's important to know that historically, Christians with a high view of Scripture have disagreed about how to interpret the days. Some understand them as 24-hour days. Some understand them as representing ages of time. Some understand them as just a literary device to explain as though uh, creation happened in a kind of work week. Even in the 5th century, Augustine, one of the uh, most famous writers and, and, and Christian leaders from the early church, said it's difficult to determine what kind of days these are. So historically, your interpretation, Christian's interpretation of what kind of days they are, has, has never been a test of orthodoxy. It's been considered a disputable matter, something over which we can respectfully disagree. We can be patient with one another over these things, as we learned last week. More, peace, more recently, some have wanted to make the length of days a test of orthodoxy, either on the side of they're not 24 hours or on the side of they are 24 hours. And, and we, we want to just humbly and respectfully say we don't believe the length of the days is what this chapter is about. And we're not going to unite or divide on that basis. It's the wrong question. The question for this chapter isn't how long, but who? And the answer is God. That's what we want to come away with from this chapter. So let's drop into day one and see what God is up to. I want you to notice four things God does in day one. First, God said, look back at the text, verse three. And God said, let there be light and there was light. So God creates by his word. I forgot I'm going to do an illustration, but I left my piece of wood down here. Thanks. All right, so I've got this beautiful piece of walnut. Thank you, Kevin, for this. I want to make a a cutting board out of this, okay? So here's, here's how this works. You ready? Let there be cutting board. Let there be cutting board. Not much going on here, is there? There could be a cutting board out of this, but you know what's going to happen? I can say, let there be cutting board all day, but I'm going to go need to get my bandsaw and my planer and my sander and the router. And it's going to take a lot of work for me to turn that piece of walnut into a cutting board. But God doesn't work that way. He says, let there be light, and there's light. God's word is his creative power in action. And then it says, The next thing it says, verse 4, look there with me, please. It says, and God saw that the light was good. So what's going on there? Is he surprised? Oh, wow, I I didn't kind of expect that to work out that way. No, this is God expressing his joy and his delight in what he's made. He assesses what it is that comes from him, and what comes from him is good. Then it says, God separated the light from the darkness. Do you know what that means? Think about it. Think about the person that can separate light from darkness in the universe. That's an expression of control. 
All this separating that God does in the creation is an expression of his control over creation. There's no one like this. He can separate day from night. He can separate water from sky. If you ever stood at the Outer Banks at the beach and stood there where the water meets the sand, you are experiencing there God's creative and providential sustaining power separating sea from dry land. God makes that happen. He has the power, the control to do that in the universe, and he sustains that through time. And then the fourth thing we see here is verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Now, naming is an expression of authority. For example, if you decide you'd like to rename the name of the street that you live on with your name on it, you can't just buy a sign and put it up there. You don't have the authority to rename your street. But God can name day, night, sky, dry land, because he's the owner. He has the authority to do that. He exercises control over that. He brings it into being by his creative word, and all that he does is good. And this process proceeds through days one, two, three, four, five, and then six. We're going to drop in, in in day six. He starts in day six with saying, let the earth bring forth living creatures, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth. And, and so we get in day six, we get goats and buffalo and geckos and all kinds of things on the earth. And then in verse 26, it says something very important. Look there with me, please. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, next week we'll drop into these verses for the whole sermon, and Justin will walk us through the much more detail what it means to be made in God's image as human beings. But I want to just just highlight the significance of what's happening here. God created man in His own image. Let us make man in our image. Just one brief aside here: when you see the word "man" there, that word in Hebrew is the word "adam," Adam. And so that same word can refer to the individual, Adam, as it will in chapter 2, or it can refer to human beings as a, as a race, men and women to, together, to the human race. And so that, that word is inclusive of male and female. So we come to day 6, and human beings are created, and for the first time it's said of something in creation that something or someone is created in God's image. And for the first time, something or someone in creation is charged by God to go into the creation to represent him. Be fruitful and multiply. Go into the earth. Subdue it. Make it into a garden. Work it and keep it. We'll see in the next chapter. Human beings are in God's image which means there are ways in which uniquely in the creation we reflect the person and character of God. 
And there are ways in the created order that we uniquely represent God in the universe. What we're being taught here is so important because it separates Christianity and Judaism as as well from the materialism that's such a common part of the world that we live in today. See, we have to ask this question, on what basis are human beings more valuable than any other animal or than anything else in creation? Because if there's no God or no creator, if we're just here by chance and time, on what basis is a human being more valuable than anything else in the created order? Why would human beings be more valuable than monkeys or spiders? It's just survival of the fittest. And so what we have, if we don't have a foundation, the image of God, what we have is we have no basis for civil rights. What's the logical basis for human rights, universal human rights, or civil rights, if we're all here by random chance and it's just survival of the fittest. There's no logical foundation for that, so we must have a design or a de- and a designer if we're going to have human rights and civil rights. And this is why the story that God gives us here is so profound and so wonderful, because made in God's image is a way of saying every human being has inherent dignity, and value. It doesn't matter whether you're born or unborn. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter whether you're able to provide for yourself or not. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. It doesn't matter where you were born or how much education you have or what language you speak. It doesn't matter. Every human being has inherent dignity because we are made in the image of God. So we'll, we'll spend more time on this next week and in the weeks to come. But I want you to j- just circle back to this, the first thing we saw in day one. How does God get all this work done? He gets it done by his word. You see that? He gets it done by his word. And God said, light, sky, land, sea. Birds, beasts, and creeping things, human beings, and it was so. So when you hear the phrase God's word, what happens for you? What do you think of? How do you feel? Does God's word, what does it stir in you? Do you just think of a, of a book that you know you should read more? Or set of rules? Is it something that's used to oppress or intimidate? Look at Genesis 1. How does formless, void, and darkness end up in abundance, light, and fullness? You know how that happens? Can you see how that happens? It happens by the word of God. God's word is God's creative power in action. 
What a privilege and a joy and a delight to have that word preserved for us in this book. But this is no empty book. And this is no book like any other book because our God is like no no one else in the universe. And our God's word is living and active. And it has this amazing, creative, life-giving, filling power. And we will discover there are Trinitarian hints here in Genesis 1. We will discover when we get to John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. We saw that. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All things were coming into being through the Word, right? We're seeing that here. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. And Jesus comes creating, filling, bringing light. So I want to urge you today, come under God's Word By coming to Christ and listening to Scripture and entrusting your life to Him so that it can become a garden full of the fruit of the Spirit, full of light and life. So here's the conclusion. Day 7 overlaps into the first part of chapter 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God rested as God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, we all know what it feels like to work hard and fall on the couch exhausted, right? You know that feeling? You've been up late maybe with a crying child. You're dealing with a crisis at work. You're trying to get all that reading done before the final You know that collapse on the couch feeling of exhaustion? God has never had that feeling. And that's not what day seven is about. God isn't tired. He isn't taking a break because he's exhausted. God didn't break a sweat making the heavens and the earth. All he had to do was talk to do all that. So what's he doing? Well, this is a rest of achievement. God, hear this. God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Always accomplishes what he sets out to do. And having accomplished what he set out to do in creation, he rests to enjoy what he's done. And if this sounds vaguely familiar, it should. Because this moment anticipates another rest of achievement after it was finished. When Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of God after making purification for sins. Why? Because his priestly intercessory work to make satisfaction for sins was complete. Because God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. In creation and in redemption. And when God enjoys what he's done on the seventh day, He sees formlessness having become order. He sees what was empty now being full and teeming with life. He sees what was darkness having become light. And he looks over his work at the end of each day. He says, it's good. At the end of day six, he says, it's very good. And again, if you've read your Bible much, this may sound familiar because it's the same pattern of Christ's work in our redemption. Doesn't Jesus Christ come to us? And take the formlessness of our lives and bring 
God's order to them. Bring the emptiness of our lives and fill us with his spirit. Bring the darkness of our sin and transform us and forgive us so that we can be living in his kingdom of light. In fact, Paul points us in this direction in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, Paul reaches right back where we are today to Genesis 1-3. Listen to what he says. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Remember, we just heard that, right? Day one. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you don't know that light, if you live in darkness, come to Christ. God will make that light shine in your hearts too. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where do you look around and see emptiness? See darkness. See wilderness like Israel saw in the desert. In Christ, God is at work in you and through you, bringing life and fullness and light, giving beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. So let's conclude with two reflection questions. First is this. What's God showing us here about himself? We've highlighted this, and I hope it's coming clear. Couldn't be more clear in the text, I think. God is the creator. He's central, and he's first. But before you go this morning, I want to just dig just just a little deeper. What is God showing you about who he is and what he's like? Do you notice this repetition of, and it was good, And God saw it was good. And God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was very good. I want you just to stay there. Why is this happening? What does this tell us about God? Is he surprised that he did a good thing? Like you get a test back and you're surprised. Oh, wow. I did better than I expected. We have those experiences. No, God is not having that experience. He's not surprised that something he did turned out well. This is God enjoying what he's made. He's expressing his pleasure and his joy in his creation. The seventh day is his his opportunity to, to enjoy all that he's made and to invite us into his pleasure and his joy over all that he makes and over all that he will do in us and through us. Why does he do this? Because God is joyful. He's not a grumpy old rule maker. He's the joyful creator of all that is good. Joy exists because God is joyful. When you stand at the rim of the Grand Canyon, when you fall in love, when you listen to a great song, when you see the cherry blossoms, where do you think that feeling of joy comes from? It comes from your creator because you are made in his image. Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and the stars and the angels, what? They sang for joy. Wisdom personified in Proverbs 8, I was daily God's delight. God rejoicing in wisdom. Hebrews 1, God has anointed Jesus with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. Do you think of God this way? He anoints Jesus with more joy than everybody else has. Because that's what God is like. Do you know that God? The first step to joy is to come under the authority of our creator who is the author and fountain of joy. 
That's the kind of God we encounter in Genesis 1. Isn't that great? How does this passage, second question for reflection, how does this passage shape what kind of church we hope to be? Simply this, let us be a church with God at the center. The God who is the source of joy. Let us be a church with God at the center. Not on the margins, not as an option, not on the weekends. God at center. God first, God last, God, God, God. Let us be a church that worships and enjoys and delights in our creator. I love that at the end of the book, Revelation 4, we get a scene, a picture of the throne room. And do you know what the people who are closest to God, the beings that are around him, do you know what they're doing? They can see him much more clearly than any of us ever have. Do you know what they're saying? They're worshiping God, and here's what they're saying. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you're the creator. That's why. Because you created all things. By your will, they existed and were created. And when we see that creator, we delight to worship him. May that be. Has been is, may it continue and increasingly be a mark of our church, God at the center, enjoying him.